You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Last week, we found out which individuals and companies donated to Australia's political parties in the financial year 2015 to 16, with banks being among the biggest donors. We also heard much ado about the Prime Minister's $1.75 million donation to his own party. Uh, Stephen Main has been watching this and many other things. He's a director of the Australia, Australian Shareholders Association, and he's also, as a, as a journalist and shareholder activist, been seeking transparency, accountability and good governance in business, media, politics politics and public life for a long time. He's a very uh, familiar voice to Triple R listeners and it's really great to have you back, Stephen. Um, I think, I suppose it's worth looking at who the big donors were. Banks were among them. Yeah, look, banks have increased their proportion of funding um, relative to other sectors. So things like mining has fallen away, uh, gambling has fallen away, even a few less property developers. So um, uh, nine of the largest 27 uh, donors were sort of financial uh, giants. You know, the, the big four in Macquarie between them gave a million dollars. But just to put that in context, uh, the figures on February 1 also showed $20 million of political expenditure by the union movement overall. That's their own spending plus their donations. So, um, you know, there's, there's, there's big numbers on both sides of the fence. Uh, public funding is still the biggest source. So the, 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 at elections, you know, the, the major parties will each get more than $20 million in public funding at the, at the rate of $2.63 per vote. So it, it is a hybrid model. There's, there's, uh, there's donations, there's public funding. Um, but the bottom line, I think, is, is that you've still got a lot of public companies who are giving a lot, and we at the Australian Shareholder Association don't believe they should give anything. We believe we should have a similar system to the UK where a public company can only donate with shareholder approval. And since the UK introduced that reform, uh, the, the political expenditure by public companies in the UK has fallen by about 90%. So shareholders don't like it. We're the peak body for retail shareholders, small shareholders. We don't like it and we'll be taking on the likes of Woodside and Macquarie and Village Roadshow and Westfield, ASX, ANZ, you know, Crown Resorts, which are still giving, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars mainly to the Liberal Party, but they do they do share it around. Village Roadshow was also the Labor Party's biggest donor because they're very keen to see tough legal action on piracy. And, um, and so you can always see the policy outcome which is being encouraged uh, with, the, <laughs> with the donation uh, where it comes from. Uh, and, it, you know, it's pretty cynical. Uh, the way the whole system works and, and the data we get is very poor as well. Yeah, and I think this um, the delay, I mean, far from real time, we've been hearing a lot of call for real time donation reporting, but I mean, this is going back to 2015-16, that financial year. I'm not aware of any other reporting, uh, which is seven months after the end of the financial year. I mean, uh, we're now in February, okay? So public companies this month all, by law, have to produce their audited half-year financial statements by the end of February. That's that's sixty days, or you know, fifty-eight days from the end of from the the, the end of the, of the reporting period. Why the politicians need seven months uh, to come up with incomplete information? I mean, this is not a cash flow statement. This is not a profit and loss statement. This is not a balance sheet. This is, these are not audited figures. This is just a list of people who gave you money. So it is a joke that it takes so long to do it. And uh, Malcolm Turnbull hopefully has highlighted the ridiculous nature of the system in that he was proposing to wait 574 days before telling us that he'd given $1.75 And it was only the embarrassment of being caught out at the press club 
that he actually brought forward the disclosure of his $1.75 million and volunteered it to Stan Grant on 7.30 last Wednesday night uh, because he was under pressure to do so. So hopefully... Uh, he will lift his performance in this area and introduce some transparency reform like we're getting with political um, with entitlements. We're getting some entitlement reform. So this is the, the most obvious gaping area of transparency reform in Australia is the federal system of campaign finance reporting and the fact that the system is anything goes. Foreigners can give $10 million. Anyone can spend Anyone can spend a billion dollars. Donald Trump can give Malcolm Turnbull a billion dollars and say, I think he's going do, to your, do your best. There's no limit on spending, there's no limit on donations and the disclosure of it is pathetic. And it's it's not really a complete picture either, is it? Because there are loopholes. You only need to um, declare or report anything over $13,000 as I understand it. You can also donate to different branches of, of a political party so theoretically you could donate below $13,000 to a number of different branches without that showing up. Um, and also you can donate to affiliates which won't necessarily be reported. So we don't even really have a full idea of exactly how much money and from where it's coming to go into that's, political That's parties. correct. I mean, uh, it's close to 50% of the of the monies donated are not uh, are blind. You, you, you don't get given a name. Then there's the other ones which go through sort of the peak bodies where you can't really, you know, work out who they are. Then there's the associated entities. So, you know, being able to say Village Roadshow has given 636000 to the two major parties and Westfield's given 370000 that is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of actually identifying the real source of the money. I mean, Macmillan Shakespeare is a big uh, public company. They're one of the biggest players in salary packaging. They don't donate, but the Salary Packaging Association... Peak body, you know, they give hundreds of thousands of dollars and they favour the Liberals because they, they've got good tax advantages for salary packaging for novated leases for cars and this sort of stuff. So, yeah, in the UK, um, it's mandatory disclosure of all political expenditure by public companies and that includes spending on your peak body, on your, on your association. So the Australian Bankers Association, you know, if we were the UK, NAB would have to say how much they spend uh, uh, with the Australian Bankers Association. And no, that's, that's, that's political expenditure, as is buying access for events. I mean, all these companies now, Macquarie is saying, we don't make donations. We, 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 give, we only spent $336,000 last year on 50 transactions. That's just to go to events. It's just going to lunch, going to dinner or attending conferences. Now, that is called cash for access. That is, that is a fundamentally, institutionally sort of risk, high risk, almost corrupt sort of system of we'll only talk to you if you give us money. I mean, cash for access. Politicians saying you can, you can access the minister if you buy your way into a lunch. So we need the parties to stop inviting people for cash for access and we need the people who get invited to stop accepting them. And then once we have that, we might have a more believable system and community trust in our elites in corporate and politi- political worlds would rise without these fundamentally troubling uh, financing arrangements that they have. Yeah, and I was I was actually about to ask that about community trust of not only politicians and politics and the way that the parties operate, but also corporations and and the cosy relationships that we we see between those. I mean, are we at an all time low with regards to attitudes towards both 
politics and business, do you we, think? We, we are, and, and, and the media elites as well. Um, and so I think, yeah, I agree. And one way to build community trust is to stop this arrangement. And NAB has come out and said, National Australia Bank have come out and said, we're not going to do any more uh, political expenditure because uh, of the, the community perception mm. issue. So I, I think it's, it's, it's on the nose. Uh, I mean, basically, at the end of the day, it's, it's vested interests... Uh, purchasing access to and trying to influence policy outcomes and and the outsiders the ordinary people are just are just have had a gutful and uh, that is why the sort of the the anti-establishment movement is so on on the run on the rise globally because these practices are unacceptable. Mm. It is not acceptable for the elite corporates to have yeah. purchase access to the elite politicians and then buy themselves positive regulatory outcomes, which is fundamentally what does happen. Well, and, and it's one thing, I guess, to have this information out there, but another entirely for it to lead to substantive change. And, and I mean, the one reason Malcolm Turnbull admitted how much he donated to the Liberal Party was because of continual prodding by journalists. The journalists doing um, enough work or the right work to kind of point out how how, how flawed the system is, do you think? Well, as a journalist myself, I, I consider myself a complete failure for the fact that I've been banging on about this issue for 15 years and nothing has changed. So I haven't, ha- haven't been very powerful as a journalist. I haven't got the change. And the reason for this is, and the journalists, I think, have a lot to answer for, is particularly the ABC. I mean, Four Corners did a great piece last year, but I, I went back and looked at this a year ago and the 7.30 report had never done a story on the night of the data dump. AM had done two, I think. PM had done five or something in the last 15 years. So even the, even the number one sort of ABC programs have not been campaigning for reform. And that's partly because the data dump is so hard to digest. It is so hard to put together. I mean, last year it was Charlie Pickering who did the best coverage. He did a 10-minute thing uh, on, on his ABC show and he printed out... And it's a comedy show. A comedy show, <laughs> but he, he, he printed out, you know, a massive stack of papers and said this is all the information that we're given. So, so the political duopoly conspire to make the disclosure as un, unusable as possible. I mean, if you were really trying to get a run, you'd have a lock-up. You know, you do what they do with the budget. You say, hey, journos, come in. We'll lock you up for three hours. We'll explain what all the data means. All the donors are here to say why they donated. All the party secretaries are here. The Prime Minister's here to say that because he got 400000 out of this person, they didn't make this policy change. So everyone's locked up. We want you to do as much well-informed commentary as possible on this information. Instead, it's dumped, it's late, it's incomplete. No-one's available to talk. I mean, I saw Scott Ryan at the women's footy on Friday night. Okay, he's just coming out. He was, I was locked out. He was coming out to take his kids <laughs> home early. He's the special minister of state. Okay, he's responsible for political. So not a lock up, a lock out, Stephen. Yeah, and he he, he <laughs> hadn't done one bit of media on on the mm. data dump. He he had not spoken on it. He he had just done the usual thing of hide. Don't mm. talk to the media. Don't feed this beast. We want no one to notice it because we operate with this system, and this system's great for us because we get lots of money, um, and fundamentally the game is up. But I just don't know. We need a real crisis to get it fixed, and hopefully Turnbull's embarrassment over the 1.75 million uh, will be it, or a Xenophon-style person coming through, just going over the top and saying, "If you don't fix this, 
everyone's going to vote for me because you know it's indefensible what goes on. Mm. You know, we're speaking with Stephen May, and we're talking about political donations and the the data dump of all the details of who, well, not all the details, some of the details of who donated to political parties came out on the first of Feb, and uh, made me think though about this idea of of business and then the relationships with governments um, being on the nose. And I'm thinking back to when Gina Reinhart was out with her megaphone, remember, um, protesting against the the mining tax. And I wonder if that was happening now, whether it would work in the way that it worked last time. I wonder if there has been some change and even if it's just community attitudes. Well, I think there's, there's been a fundamental change in, in 10 years and that can be demonstrated by the, 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 the massive campaign that the resources industry ran to basically knock over... Kevin Rudd and get Julia Gillard to put in a pathetic mining tax that raised no money. Uh, compared with what's happening right now, where a conservative politician, Brendan Grills, the National Party guy in WA, the, the, the local member for, for the Pilbara, is proposing a massive new tax on BHP and Rio and is really popular. And, and BHP, ahead of an election. Ahead of an election, yep. and he's going to do really well, and the community want. BHP and Rio to be slugged to pay massive more taxes because they can't believe the fact that they've got the richest dowry in the world in WA and they've got a state debt of $30 billion. and you've got individuals like Gina Reinhardt who are worth $15 billion based on this state-owned resource. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Like some of the stuff that Wayne Swan was saying um, has come true, really. I mean, this idea... Because at the time when that was all happening, there was a lot of employment in mining and people were like, don't touch it, we need the jobs. But now that employment has really petered out Mm. uh, to to a greater or lesser extent. And that, that campaign was basically... It was Tony Abbott running a very effective opposition campaign. It was News Corp. And, and newspapers were more powerful back then. And it was the Minerals Council spending $17 million in six weeks and BHP spending $4 million in six weeks. So they, they did a massive advertising campaign. This time, I mean, I did an interview on ABC Perth last week about the fact that BHP had put a message on their employees' computer screens and Brendan Grills was cu- accusing them of bullying and, and I was sort of saying, look, I think you're allowed to talk to your employees. You know, so that, that's the extent of what BHP is doing this time. There's no campaigns, there's no donations. BHP doesn't donate, Rio doesn't donate. So they are just hoping that it goes their way, but they realise they cannot stick their head up above the parapet because they are making billions of dollars. WA has a massive debt. This is a conservative politician going after them this time, unlike last time where all the conservatives, led by Abbott, were against it. Now they're, even their own side, the so-called pro-business politicians, are proposing massive tax tax slugs on the two bigger, biggest business operators in in the West. That shows you how the, the sentiment has changed, and politicians are less beholden to business uh, these days. And we we can't let you get out of here, Stephen, without um, asking you about the closing of the main report, which um, which happened over the past week. Something you've been running for, I think, the best part of of ten years. Does this mark a, a new direction for you? Um, look, it's not a, not a massive new change. I, I always did a lot of stuff on Twitter and talking with other media and, and writing for Crikey and being a freelancer. All I'm really doing is I'm, I'm no longer doing my own outlet and I'm just going to focus more on being a conventional, um, basically sort of freelance journalist. So I'm no longer on City of Melbourne, so I don't have the conflicts of being, are you a politician or are you a journalist? And so the main report was used also for political campaigns. It was mm. used to, to sort of highlight you know, transparency in government. And now I'm actually saying... I'm a journalist. 
Um, and it is a bit hard maintaining your own website, you know, with the, the cost and the time. And frankly, um, you know, it was a bit of a labour of love. And I thought, look, I'll, 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 I'll close the book. My IT provider said they were pulling the rug and uh, I could have had to, would have had to rebuild it and move it all onto another website. And I thought, no, nah, let's just close it down and go back to writing more for Crikey and Twitter and, and doing sort of conventional stuff and working with the Australian Shareholders Association where I'm still on the board. So I'll still be going to a few AGMs and trying to shake up the, uh, the corporate practices uh, through the ASA. Great. Well, all the best, and hopefully we'll hear you a little bit more on um, this show on Triple R, Stephen. It's always good to have you on. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you. Stephen Main, shareholder activist, journalist, front and centre now, and uh, a director of the Australian Shareholders Association. And uh, next up, um, historian Bruce Pascoe, novelist Bruce Pascoe as well, is uh, joining us. And it's been a little while since we've had him on. Last time we spoke about his fascinating book, Dark Emu, Black Seeds, Agriculture or Accident, which went on to win the New South Wales Premier's Literary Award last Last year, and his research in that book showed up, among other things, that Aboriginal people are likely to have been the world's first bakers, and far from hunter gatherers, for thousands of years cultivated vast areas with food crops and managed complex estates. His research has driven new interest in traditional Indigenous agriculture and foods, and he himself has been cultivating the traditional Murnong or Yam Daisy, and through a new organisation is expanding this work. Uh, Bruce is appearing at the Sustainable Living Festival later this week week as part of a Future of Food Forum and it's really great to have you back on this program. Bruce, welcome. Thank you very much. And um, congrats on your awards uh, for Dark Emu and I understand you're um, adapting that for uh, for schools now. Yeah, there's a schools edition uh, of that book coming out uh, for 9 to 12 year olds and we're looking forward uh, to kids learning about the real history of the country. Yeah, and a very important book. If you haven't read it, Dark in You is widely available. And I, I think also uh, since we last spoke, you've sort of set up an organisation called Kurundri Manji, which is a project, I understand, that where you're, you've crowdfunded to um, drive Indigenous agriculture and, and food crops. Can you tell us what you're up to? Yeah, we, we had crowdfunding last year and we were able to uh, put in a substantial yam garden uh, at Berry. Uh, we've got yams growing at uh, my place in Genoa and Apollo Bay as well as amongst other places, but the, a lot of our seed is coming from Berry at this stage and uh, we had someone employed thanks to a possible campaign uh, who uh, got those gardens set up and uh, we were very grateful for that. And this year we um, have got some money from Possible again, um, for which we're very grateful and we're going to buy a harvester uh, with that money so that we can harvest kangaroo grass and panicum, sorghum and some of the other um, Australian grasses uh, that have never uh, been uh, used commercially in this country except by Aboriginal people. Uh, They were central to our economy and we're uh, working to bring those grasses back because they're so important to uh, Aboriginal an Australian history, but also to the environment because they're perennial grasses. Uh, their root mass sequesters carbon. Uh, you can get a yield of the grain off them, which is gluten-free. Um, and uh, the uh, grasses that we grow are also uh, are very uh, gentle uh, in the digestion, uh, very good for diabetics and I think there's a huge future for those grains in the Australian economy 
and we just hope that Aboriginal people are recognised as having domesticated those plants and uh, rewarded accordingly. And so is there a plan in the near future, Bruce, for, for these um, crops that you're producing for the, the yield from that to be commercially available? Yeah, there is. That's our whole aim. We have to refine our techniques. Our house is full of kangaroo grass seed at the moment and we're uh, using different techniques to mill it and to convert it into flour. Um, and we will be doing the same with panicum in March and um, eventually we'll get onto sorghum and uh, some of the other grasses as well. But we have to relearn what the old people knew about these grasses, how they handled them, uh, how they used them. And um, it's, you know, it's time-consuming. We harvested at Malakuta this summer. We had a, a really good result. Um, but now the hard work is um, learning how to find our way back to those old uh, techniques. Yeah, no, I was, I was actually thinking about where you were getting that wisdom from. Is it really trial and error? Well, it, it, it is to a certain extent. We do know a certain amount from elders. Um, but I'm working with UTS students in Sydney this year, uh, research students, and we're, we're going to do a literature search as well as a, a social search, looking for people who know anything there is to know about these grains and how they were used, but also how they were described by explorers and um, early settlers. Uh, we'll get a, a lot of information out of that search, and I'm, I'm very grateful to UTS for making their research students available for that task. And your book, Dark Emu, Bruce, I mean, was really fascinating for basically upending accepted narratives of Australia's history and, and really challenging that assumption that um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were hunter-gatherers and, and didn't have refined agricultural techniques, which um, your book shows they absolutely did. And I, I guess, though, from another perspective reading your book, anyone who's, who's into food, whether they be chefs um, or cooks or anyone who likes eating food, would get really excited by the prospects of, of eating and, and cooking with, um, with yams, for example. Have you had a lot of interest since the book was published from people looking to kind of experiment with different recipes? Yeah, we're probably getting a dozen emails a day from people who want <laughs> flour. We can't supply that at the moment. We will in the future, but at the moment we're working with a, a group of bakers and uh, restaurateurs who were with us from the first days of this project, and they're the people who will be supplying with a little bit of flour. We don't have a lot. Uh, to get some recipes going, uh, publicise the product and, um, and then we'll be into full-scale harvests next season. Um, and there's an enormous amount of interest from the public and people, you know, dropping in here to see how the process is going. And um, we, we know that this is going to take off in Australia because people are very interested in food, they're interested in health, and many of those same people are also interested in history, the real Australian history that everybody can be uh, proud of and not uh, shy away from it like we have for 220 years, but embrace it. Embrace the fact that Aboriginal people knew the land, knew how to look after the environment and respected the earth. Uh, all very important things for our um, environment today. We don't have to muck around with things like clean coal we can concentrate on growing grasses that sequester carbon. In the future, farmers will be paid to plant these grains 
and to harvest them because you don't need to plough your land. The plant itself sequesters carbon, produces a very healthy flower, much healthier than white wheat flour. Um, you know, our country is going to embrace these foods. I hope they also embrace the history of the country and the people who created these things. And Bruce Pascoe is with us, historian and novelist, and uh, we uh, spoke with him recently about his book, Dark Emu, Black Seeds, Agriculture or Accident, and this really has spurred on his own personal interest, but also a growing interest in uh, native grains, uh, traditional grains and foods that were cultivated here uh, and still exist. And where are you getting the seeds from? Are you, are you kind of travelling out and, and finding where these uh, grasses and grains are still growing, Bruce? Yeah, we... Um got a lot more grassland than we can harvest at the moment but that's because we're at such a small scale uh, we're using a tiny little harvester at the moment we'll get a bigger one shortly uh, but we've got a very good old field of kangaroo grass at Malakuta airport and the um, uh, East Gippsland Shire very generously allowed us to uh, work on the airport uh, at peak season so uh, there were planes coming in and out and we were able to cooperate with the Shire and the airport managers to uh, harvest the grass and uh, not interfere with their operations but we really appreciated that because it's such a, an easy contained area to work and also has um, history there's history attached to that um, the use of that grain by the Aboriginal people of that area um, we were very grateful a mate of mine from Tim Billica Robert Allen and uh, Irene Allen, they were uh, allowed us to come onto their place and work on a, an extensive crop of kangaroo grass that grows on their roadside. And uh, uh, you know, I really appreciate that generosity because I remember hay carting for Robert's father um, a long, long time ago now in the, in the early 70s. And um, to go back to that property today with an, a different uh, intent... Uh, was fantastic and uh, these are the kind of associations that we're developing with country people uh, because farmers even though uh, you know they've the, the market wants them to grow wheat and, and dairy and things like that the farmers are really conscious of looking after their land not all farmers but most farmers really care for their land and um, we're showing them ways in which they can do it uh, even better, and uh, and also be in touch with the, the history of that land. Um, you know, the, the land that Robert's on, on the Wallagra River, has got a fabulous Aboriginal history, and his family, you know, non-Aboriginal family, have um, uh, been respectful of that. And I, I love um, all of these connections, Bruce, because I, I saw a, a sort of a feature on what you're doing in Gourmet Traveller as well, so you're kind of making connections at all different levels. Oh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a famous cook now. <laughs> um, my kids, um, you know, just laugh when they, when they read that um, report. And, you know, I got an award for, you know, contribution to Australian cuisine or something, and they just fell about. They couldn't believe it, you know. My daughter said, do you get that for your stew, Dad? Um, you know, I'm not renowned for, um, for cooking. And, um, but uh, it's nice to think that the food community is super conscious of how we might be growing food in this country in the future.
And, I mean, you do get around, Bruce. I've seen you speak at a few different writers' festivals, um, like the Black and Bright Festival, so the uh, Melbourne Writers' Festival, I think, last year, um, a really interesting chat about history. But you are set to appear as part of the Sustainable Living Festival at a f- Future of Food forum. Is there anything specific you'll be talking about as part of that session? Yeah, I'll be uh, talking about the foods and the history and um, the way forward, um, how we see that all Australians can combine in uh, growing better food and uh, in a better way for our country, for the earth itself. I've been picturing the food label um, for these um, grains, Bruce, with the, the gluten-free tick, the, uh, you know, all the different other food groups that we want to see more in our diet. And I, uh, I wonder if you're getting a sort of a broad interest in, in sort of, you know, permaculture groups even to try and uh, get, on, get on this, um, this bandwagon and started to, to grow uh, grains in all different parts of the country. Yeah, the permaculture people and the small food groups, uh, they've, they've been very, very enthusiastic. And I've been travelling all over the country, um, sometimes overseas, talking about these foods and growing methods. Um, very hard on my family um, because it means I'm away a lot. But the, the message is so important. Um, and... For Aboriginal people to have this conversation with Australia is remarkable because we haven't been able to talk about history and food together um, and on equal terms before and so it's so important to make sure that we don't miss that opportunity to have that conversation because the conversation between black and white in this country has been appalling. It's been juvenile and usually ends up in something like an intervention in the Northern Territory uh, there's no no real depth to the um, intellectual base of those conversations and here we have a chance to do it uh, where all people can enter the argument on equal terms and um, and try and get a, an outcome that is respectful of both black and white and, and that would be an absolute first in this country. And it's really exciting times, and uh, and you're also on top of all this work um, that your history work. You're also still writing novels, though. Somehow, somehow you've got you've got your manuscript packed in your suitcase. Yeah, um, I'm finding it harder and harder to find that time, but um, um, I enjoy it when I when I can. And I've got a novel called Imperial Harvest, ironically enough, <laughs> uh, which has nothing to do with Australia really, but it's about. Um, the predilection of men to go to war against each other and create violence and why that is, uh, how it played out across Asia and Europe. And um, ultimately, that um, is a series of novels that end up in Australia where the same thing is played out again, all over again, the same old sad tale of murder and betrayal and greed. And so it's not... Um, the novels aren't very... <laughs> that much further away from the the non-fiction that I've been writing but I enjoy telling stories um, uh, stories that I've heard stories that I've read about and uh, and trying to you know think of uh, ways in which you know people might behave a bit differently 
Well, thanks so much for joining us today and everyone can head down and uh, hear Bruce Pascoe speaking as part of the Future of Food Forum down at the Sustainable Living Festival uh, this Saturday, uh, the 11th of February. It's in the Greenhouse um, and with Andrea Rayner and uh, you can find out more information on the Sustainable Living Festival website. There's heaps of events actually as part of that festival. This is just one of them, but I think a really significant one and it's really great to have you on, Bruce, and looking forward to talking with you um, when your novel comes out. Good on you. Lovely to have a yarn. And uh, likewise, Bruce Pascoe, historian, and uh, his book, Dark Emu, award-winning book, uh, is put out through that wonderful publishing house called Magabala Books. And with Sally Riffin today, and it's so good to see you, Sally, after, what, a couple of months off over the summer period. Yeah, it's lovely to be back. And we were just chatting in the green room before um, this is three years now, which is Since so we've been exciting. bringing the reading room. So the idea, I mean, for those that have missed it over the last couple of years, or, I mean, if you're hearing it for the first time, I'm Sally Rippen is um, author and illustrator. You know her from Billy B. Brown and Hey Jack and a new series coming out soon. Uh, but we really have been bringing in some of your favourites and my favourites and Dylan's favourites, authors and illustrators and publishers, to talk all things children's literature and I suppose to just put it on the map as a very worthy and important area to talk about all the time yeah and to remind people that children's authors can talk about things other than children's books sometimes and we're actually a pretty smart bunch when you get to know us and Davina Bell is joining us um, and actually you came in when we first kicked this kind of segment off um, about three years ago I think Davina we're still going strong yeah we talked about historical fiction then I remember it well so thanks so much for having me back lovely to be here that three years has flown by I know crazy (laughs) and Davina too because when you came in you were still um, working at Penguin and now you're out on your own writing and making your own books. So that's been a massive three years for you too. Yeah, and the past three years I was a hermit living on the edge of a vineyard for a couple of years writing a very bad novel. So things have really changed since then. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you don't have a bad novel to talk about today. You have a very good um, children's picture storybook called Under the Love Umbrella, which uh, is very tactile. It's a very beautiful feeling book. Maybe tell oh, us a little bit about you. the story as well. Well, there's a reason it feels so beautiful. It's because the illustrator... And the designer um, is Alison Copways, who is actually Australia's most awarded book designer. Um, and so she has very specific, beautiful ideas about um, the book as an object and using beautiful paper stock. And this is printed in Pantone, so it's really bright and fluorescently coloured. Um, and yeah, it's got a sort of Wibbleton-esque cover for book nerds out there. It's a, sort of like a textured cloth cover. Um, so that's why it looks so good, Carly. It's all Alison's work. She's the illustrator. And you guys collaborated on a book um, that came out last year and won Children's Book of the Year last year. Fancy, I'm going to say the title wrong though, aren't I? Fancy Dress Parade? The Underwater Fancy the underwater Dress Parade. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so you've worked with with Alison before and you collaborated with her intentionally to do something. It has a similar feeling, doesn't it, under the water fancy. The underwater fancy dress parade is a lot about children's feelings and, and understanding what it might be like to be a child, which you seem to have a really good knack of doing. And this one has that angle as well. Can you tell oh, us a little bit about what is thank that? Thank you, Sally. That's so funny, actually, because when I wrote this book, the first book was about um, shyness, and I really set out deliberately to talk about um, social anxiety and shyness in children, because I was a very shy child, and I just wanted to give a book to the world where a shy kid could identify with themselves. So that was a very deliberate choice. And then this one, I thought, I'm going to do something completely different. I'm going to write a rhyming book about love, like universal love and um, the, uh, the the love that follows a child wherever they are in the world. So they're always under someone's love umbrella. And then since it's been written and illustrated and published, all the um, reviews are pointing out, this is actually a book about anxiety um, because it points out different situations where you might feel uneasy or ashamed or shy and that 
in spite of that, you're still under someone's love umbrella. So actually, I thought I was straying really far from those themes, and actually, <laughs> turns out they're just following me around, which I guess is not a bad thing. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the reviewers are right, then you think? Uh, it's funny, isn't it, Sally? You might have experienced this before. Sometimes you don't know what a book is about until other people point it out to you, and mm-hmm. then you think, "Oh my gosh, of course, that's that's about this part of my life," or "I'm really actually writing this part of my own story or my own childhood." But you can't see it yourself in the moment as you're writing it. So. Absolutely, and I think what the parts that you often can't see in your own work are the parts that come most deeply from yourself as well. So you may start out by writing a story with characters and plot and dialogue and so forth, but what's hidden in it and what other people will read in it is the part of yourself that, that comes through. And I think that's the bit that children connect to as well. Oh, no, that's true. So do you find, have you found that in your own work, people pointing out parts of it that you hadn't realised were there? Has yeah. that been a theme for you? Absolutely. And I think sometimes it's really helpful to, to be able to see that from someone else's perspective. Yeah, and you have something new coming out before we go into more detail, but you've got Polly and Buster. You've been living in new characters, Sally, over the last yeah, what, year or two. Yeah, it's a little way to go. So then the book's not coming out till June and it'll be the first of four, over four years, so one a year. And Polly is a witch who's very bad at doing spells and Buster is a feelings monster. So I think <laughs> that's my interpretation of what you write to Davina is all about, how feelings can change you and, um, and empathy as well, which I think we were chatting before about how important it is for children to learn empathy through reading books and how well books can offer that for children. Oh, and Sally, I was so fascinated. I wondered if you'd mind repeating because we were talking about the genesis for the Polly and Buster idea and how it came about a conversation with your son trying to explain about sort of civil unrest and apartheid and prejudice. I thought that was such an interesting story. Yeah, well, it it can be tricky because the other thing that often um, children's authors and publishers will find is that it can come across as heavy-handed or didactic and people can really shy away from something that come, that is too obviously trying to explain um, stories of difference. And so I thought if I make it a witch and a monster, they're very so obviously different without perhaps student, including stories of children of different colour or different religion or culture. Um, so that was my easy way out in explaining something quite difficult. And I think also, I mean, like you say, if you really set out to have... Uh, a moral or a learning for children they can smell it a million miles an hour like away don't you think they they just kind of they know it's an education book and it's not for entertainment and no thank you well it's interesting isn't it because often I'll teach and you probably had this experience too Davina I'll teach writing workshops to adults and some of them will come in because they'll say I want to write a a book about for children about children with disability because I have a son who's in a wheelchair or something like that and we were chatting about how it is really important that those stories are seen and that they're read by children to understand what it's like to be the other. But there is a really fine balance. I know some publishers find it difficult to publish something that may not be written by a person of colour but is about a person of colour. Um, But at the same time, if these stories aren't being told, then how can children who have grown up with different experiences of the world feel validated and like they have a story to tell. So it's a, it's a fine balance, Well, it's about it, it being normal too and not an aberration that yeah. oh, suddenly there's a, there's a different character that's vastly different from every other character in books you read, but about normalising that. And mm. I mean, I was thinking before, before doing this show today about books I'd read that had sort of encouraged empathy, but I mean, a, a lot of books do, but mm. they're not obvious about it. So I just liked books as a kid. I didn't know why, but when there's a good story, you get sucked into it and you live through those characters, but you don't necessarily make a very deliberate or conscious effort to kind of, um, you know, interpolate that into your, your consciousness or mm. your worldview as you get older, but well, it happens. reading is an act of empathy, isn't it? You're mm. forced to put yourself into the, the skin or the fur or the scales of the character that you're reading about. And you had a couple of books that you remembered from your childhood that you, you felt like were books that, um, I guess, create a feeling of kindness or empathy. 
Mm, well, the one that I always come back to because it's just such a classic is the tiger who came to tea, and that puts an animal in the position of the other. So it's not a person with a disability or of a different race, but it's really about subverting your expectations of what someone would be like. Like you expect the tiger to be scary, and he's actually got beautiful manners, um, and you expect him to come in and rip up the place, and he sits there and just downs all the cupcakes. So I really remember that feeling of oh, the ti- the tiger is kind, the tiger is polite, and that yeah, really realizing for the first time. People aren't always what you think they might be. That's true. I, I, actually, what I remember taking from that book is really, can you run out of water in the tap? Because remember, <laughs> the tiger drank yes. all the water in the tap, as, an and early, then it was empty. Yeah, an early <laughs> water conservation narrative. Perhaps, <laughs> before it's had its time. Well, it's like the library lines, like that. Um, the, is that the name of it? The library line. I remember the line that went into the library and everyone was kind of like, whoa, there's a, li- a line in the library and then they be- became this kind of fixture and everybody missed him when he wasn't there yeah. and that sort of thing. So I think, yeah, that those themes, I think kids really do respond to them. And Charlotte's Web, I'm sure most children have yes. grown up reading Charlotte's Web and, and even just em- empathising with animals. I remember after reading that, really looking at animals in a different way and, and being much more gentle around spiders. <laughs> and, and rats. That really helped me overcome a fear of rats. Yeah, really. Well, there's a, and I think Mem Fox, I mean, she's been ahead of her time in a, in a lot of ways, I suppose. But Wilfred Gordon MacDonald Partridge is a book about a little boy who lived next door to a. Uh, an old people's home, a retirement village of sorts and, and connected with this woman who I suppose had dementia maybe or f- was forgetful anyway and started to forget really important things in her life and people said, oh, she's losing her memory and he kind of found her memories for her. And I, I mean, that's a very emotional book but it really does connect old old and young people and I think that was the motivation behind it was to say, well, what a loss that, mm. that older people are in... Uh, one setting and, and, you know, kids are in another and we're starting to see change there, aren't we? Kindergartens being next door to uh, retirement villages and having connections between the two. So, you know, that's only, what, 20, 30 years since she wrote that book. That's right. <laughs> and then we were thinking of Bob Graham too, how he creates so much incidental empathy in his stories. They're not, um, some of them quite uh, directly, like How to Heal a Broken Wing, um, about obviously kindness and empathy but sometimes just even when you look at the pages of his characters you see all kinds of people represented and it's not at all heavy-handed it is just if you to walk down sydney road this is pretty much the kind of people you would see oh actually sally that brings up something that happened with my book under the love umbrella it that happened actually while we were walking down sydney road the illustrator and i and we walked past a gorgeous um family where the children were wearing hijabs and i said oh could we put a girl in a park there's a big park scene with all different kinds of people i said could we put a girl in a hijab and the illustrator said oh but if we don't have we don't have a jewish little boy in a skull cap or we don't have any seats with turbans is it okay to do one of those things and not the other and then we thought about putting all those things in one illustration and it felt like is that really tokenistic? Is that really unnatural? Is that does that become forced? And at what point does it tip between something being deliberately sort of almost to- yeah, tokenistically put into a, to a children's book? And at what point does it tip and just become a natural representation of what's in the world? I found that a really interesting kind of dilemma to have. So in the end, we because she said, well, if a Christian person, we can't sort of you're not going to be able to see a tiny cross, or there are religions that don't have any kind of outward appearance in the in the dress or clothing, or um, so that was became a really interesting conversation that we had, and I think um, a really challenging one for publishers and authors and illustrators. And, in and book. What did you do in the end? In the end, <laughs> if you look in the park scene, there is a little girl wearing a hijab because we thought culturally out and about that is a reflection of the world. Um, but I've thought about that a lot since and wondered, did we make the right decision? Like. 
yeah, what what could we do, have done differently, and how should we how should we do that differently in our next book? So it's interesting. Well, I think I mean when if you go for. I suppose that's sort of all the colours of the world kind of um, view. It starts looking like a stock image that government departments it's use in there. <laughs> you know that look? Absolutely. And it's, just, and it's so obvious what's what's going on there. Anyway, we should remind people, Davina Bell's with us, writer and editor, and also Sally Rippon um, co-hosting with us another reading room um, looking at really compassion and understanding in children's literature. And uh, it sounds to me like you had quite a collaborative relationship with the illustrator with this book, Davina. It wasn't like you did the text and the publisher hooked you up with a an illustrator. It was something that you brought together, is it? Oh, Alison and I are so, so fortunate because our publisher um, Scribe Books in Melbourne, they um, basically just let us go to Together because we met working at Penguin. Alison was a junior designer and I was a baby editor. Um, and we both were the people who stayed really late back at the office. Um, the suckers who stayed till, you know, midnight and I'd give her a lift home. And we realised we shared this love of vintage picture books. And as the years went on, we thought if we should try and do one of our own. Because um, we come from those backgrounds, our publishers pretty much just let us, like Alison does the design and I sort of edit my own books, which maybe is a good thing, maybe not. Um, but we are really lucky. We work um, outside of the publishing house, we're often at the Alderman down the street in East Brunswick, um, just coming up with ideas and um, we work really collaboratively. I see all her illustrations and suggest things and she's always, um, she tells me which bits she's really wants me. I always want to pull things out of the text and she says, no, keep that in, keep that in. So we help each other with the words and the pictures and we're really, it feels like... Um, Every, every illustration in this book that I look at, I remember the genesis of it and the different turns it took and I feel so proud of what she achieved because I feel so involved. So we're really lucky and you're right, it's, it's definitely not always the case. Often um, authors and illustrators never meet, never talk, never email. So we're super lucky. We really appreciate it. And I guess you've got a really unique perspective too, having worked on the other side of the desk literally and that you've been a publisher and an editor and so you know how separate it can be so you, you really appreciate that gift that, that you've been given. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, it is a real blessing. And um, it's funny when I work on books with other illustrators, I don't, I love all those books, but I don't feel that same passion and connection when I, when I look at the ones I've done with Al. So, mm. so yeah, really, really lucky. So is it one of the, I mean, I suppose books with pictures are like this, where you can just pour over the picture and, and kind of know some, something different of the story or something um, that aids the the text? Is that yes. how it's... Well, with this one, um, the text actually doesn't mention any specific kids or characters. It's in the second person, so it's written to the child saying, basically saying, wherever you are in the world, you're under my love umbrella. And then it says, you know, if you're feeling shy and you don't know why and you forgot your hat and you want to cry, I'm standing by because you're under my love umbrella. Um, but we sat there at the Alderman, actually, um, having a glass of wine and we thought we'd just been on a book tour for Underwater Fancy Dress Parade and we really wanted to put some of the kids who we'd met on that tour in the book. Um, um, and so we came up with this idea of four little characters who aren't mentioned in the text but who appear um, in the narrative of the pictures. And um, there's a boy from an Indian family and a little girl who's Asian who has a single dad and there's a little science nerd guy who also has two mums and we sort of created this other world of the characters and what they were like and what they were interested in that's not in not in the book at all. So, yeah, creating that second world through the illustrations is something that I've always, yeah, really loved. And there's something really nice about uh, having something there that I forgot my hat and I wanted to cry because that is of our era isn't it that if you go to school now if you've primary school and you don't have a hat you can't go out to play or you have to stay under shelter and 
I mean, that wasn't the case when I was a kid. You could burn to a, you know, didn't no one, <laughs> I think no it, I one think it just came in when I was in primary school. Oh, did it? That shows, that shows the, yeah, the generational <laughs> change that happened at some point when people went, oh, we're contributing to skin cancer in <laughs> children. Well, we've actually, Alison's drawn a little sign, no hat, no play, in the illustrations yeah, because every primary school we went to to talk, that would be up, to, up on the board somewhere. When you're writing a book like this, and like a lot of picture books, I guess, that don't use a lot of words um, and like poems as well, I suppose, do you, is, is it difficult to kind of whittle it down to something that's really concise and, and gets across exactly what you want to say, but yet in quite simple words? Yeah, absolutely, I think. And also that idea of using language that doesn't speak down to a child mm. but also isn't too complicated for a child. Sally, do you find that a hard balance to strike yeah, with your writing? Yeah, completely. Idea? And I think when you, when you throw in a rhyme as well, you're just doubling the work. Because <laughs> 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 you can't just pull one word out of it. Yeah, yeah, it's so very hard. Mm. We were chatting too before about how I guess it feels like there's a little bit of a cusp in um, there's a lot of dialogue around representing all kinds of voices in literature and, and how some of that domain has become really tricky domain. You know, people are quite nervous about appropriating other cultures and other people are on the side of, well, if these stories aren't told, how will children grow up seeing them? And I just wanted to give a quick shout-out, if I may, about um, an initiative that's been set up by a few young adult writers. I know Rebecca Lim is one of the people involved, um, calling uh, emerging authors and illustrators to do a pitch, um, particularly if you can come under one of these categories if you're Indigenous, someone of colour LGBTIQA or living with a disability and the pitch is Voices from the Intersection. It's a publishing pitch day on Sunday the 5th of March between 2 and 4 at the State Library I'm sure if you Google it you can find some more information. And it's particularly for writing for children? Um, Children and young adults and really to kind of diversify the voices out there from an authentic place. Um, So maybe we can put something up on on the website. Yeah, we can share that. But, I mean, is that still something that is is needed like it, I mean you know more people in in the sort of it children's book and like young, YA industry yeah. than I do well certainly the first book I had published was about an Australian um, Chinese child growing up in Australia and that was back in 96 and I think at that stage it seemed that I was the token go-to person if you wanted a story that was about a Chinese Australian <laughs> until other um, great writers kind of joined the throng Gabrielle Wang namely among many others Rebecca Lim as well but um, it does it, it can be tricky terrain. I know some publishers feel very uncomfortable publishing stories about Indigenous uh, people if it's not by an Indigenous writer. So there are sensitivities that need to be thought of and considered, but at the same time, we need to get the stories out there. So it's fi- really finding that delicate balance. And you've, you found that in publishing too, that the, the goodwill is there, but it's tricky to find those voices. Oh, absolutely. When I was working on the Our Australian Girl series, which I talked about last time, I desperately wanted to have um, a Sudanese child on from the 90s on one of the covers and I thought how empowering if you're a young Sudanese or African descent child growing up in Australia to see a photo of yourself on the cover and I tried so hard to find a Sudanese writer who could share that experience or research that experience with authenticity and it was just really really difficult to find people with these really specific experiences who can write books or who are interested in exploring that through story and so that's why I think I had um, the time and the to, to participate in that exact project oh, as well. absolutely because mm-hmm. to yeah to write to craft those kind of narratives is really a lot of work um and yeah the goodwill is in is in the publishers to find these stories but you at the same time is it is it kind of patronizing to publish work that isn't really publishable or isn't good enough uh 
and the payoff of that is getting that story out there. So it's this tricky balance that publishers have in that they desperately, desperately want to represent these voices, but they don't have the resource or the right person or the right timing to make that happen. So that's why things like this event, um, the pitch session you mentioned, Sally, seems so exciting to me because I know there is so much desire among publishers to represent all kinds of stories and that obviously people, um, often people accuse publishers of being, oh, it's just... Well, there's a whole movement, isn't there, yeah. in mm. the US mm. that basically pointing the finger at, at media and publishing Pushing houses. Absolutely. But you yeah. don't think it's deserved? I think that if people realised how difficult that was to do, and that's not an excuse, um, they would have, and that, that that desire is so strong to represent those voices. It's not that we haven't thought about it, that we haven't looked for it. It's just that the logistics make that really tricky and finding the right person. And it's often that one connection, that one person who can write from that point of view. I'm thinking about Ahn Doe and Alice Pung, that through the generations, those stories have come down and they're at the point where they're ready to be told and they can tell them. So mm. It's interesting, isn't it? Because what, I mean, as you say, if the if the, the desire is there and the audience is there and the writers are there, then, you know, joining those dots, it sounds like that that's where we're at, is it? Is that- Absolutely. And also there is also the side of the sales and marketing people wanting to make sure there is a market for it, but growing ever more, I think there is a growing market for these kind of other interesting narratives of people who are often on the fringe. And I think um, the success of books like Wonder that's being made into a movie about a boy with a disfigured face and um, oh, so many amazing picture books at the moment about the refugee experience as well, thinking of The Journey and My Two Blankets. A lot of these stories are starting to now come out. But you're right, it is that lining up of all those ducks in a row and trying to make something beautiful and meaningful with impacts that isn't just published because it's about a certain issue. Mm. Yeah, that's really. I mean, it's it's really interesting for me to hear that that uh, work is is going on. And I wonder, uh, I suppose these kinds of pictures, what you just read out, Sally, is about cultivating, um, you know, the new writers or people that are writing in for other audiences to then write for children as well. I suppose that's kind of kind of what they're doing with AFL women at the moment, stealing from hockey and netball. And <laughs> How did you find it, Sally, when, when you sort of first did that? Did you kind of go in cautiously at all? Were you really aware of those no, sensitivities? I was so completely naive. I, I'd come back from living in China, so I was tutoring Chinese-Australian kids, so I was really just writing a story about a child that I was tutoring at the time because I couldn't see anything out there that mm. I could use with her. Um, and then I realised that... that that we was, there was a really big gap there that needed to be filled. And so I, f- I feel like people are moving in slowly. And even, I guess, as the... Um, I think even if you've grown up reading books, say, by Alice Pongrando or a lot of the other wonderful writers we have that have very diverse voices, it will give you more confidence to think, oh, this is something that I could do too. It's not just the terrain of the, the white male writer <laughs> or the the privileged white female writer as, as, as I am. Um, and so it really, I guess, opens up that possibility that, that everybody has a story to tell and there isn't one type of story to be told. Well, this, um, you know, we, we're talking about the big picture here, but there's also this beautiful little book that you've <laughs> created, Davina, <laughs> that you. is just a good story. It's a beautiful rhyming story and gorgeous illustrations and really, as I said at the beginning, a very tactile book. It feels beautiful to hold in your hands and all the best with it. Oh, thank you so uh, much. You said published by Scribe and uh, it sounds like you can get your hands on it now. Uh, it actually launches at the very beginning of March, so a couple more weeks. And is there the a launch shops. that we can come to? There is a launch. Um, it's on the 9th of March at the Little Book Room in North Carlton at 6pm. Anybody's welcome to come down. I think we're going 
going to be serving an Aperol spritz for the non-children among us. Um, right. <laughs> well, all the best with her. Under the Love Umbrella, Davina Bell has been our guest in the reading room today. And Sally Rippon, you'll join us again in a month's time. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Thanks. for coming in. At- You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.